1: Lock hard radio
2: hello love to get that last bit of music in. You know, the Supreme Court r- rendered its uh, decision on the, the Affordable Care Act, better known to its uh, distractors as Obamacare, and uh, we thought it was time to bring in an expert about what it means for small business. So Steve Friedman uh, of Littler Mendelssohn, uh, agreed to come on and talk to us about what it, what the decision means, what the future holds. Uh, Steve, welcome to the program again. Thank you, Don. Uh, as we ask all our guests, tell us a little bit about yourself personally before we get in, into anything else.
0: Sure. Well, I co-chair the Employee Benefits Practice Group at Littler Mendelssohn. Littler is the largest firm in the world that uh, specializes purely in labor, employment, and benefits issues. Uh, we're, we're a law firm, and um, we have about 50 offices in the United States and some offices in other countries as well, and Affordable over character is something that consumes an awful lot of my day because there are so many issues and so many concerns that I see with our clients, both big and small, uh, and... Oftentimes, I'm helping the small folks because they're the ones that often are going through the biggest amount of disruption in their businesses and have the biggest problems with increasing costs. And so I spend an awful lot of time doing that, um, you know, helping them navigate through the treacherous waters of the Affordable Care Act.
2: Well, what are some of the major issues your smaller clients are facing that uh, you'd like to talk about? Well, the first
0: thing is is something that came into play in the beginning of 2015 that is the employer mandate. The employer mandate states that employers will be penalized unless they cover a sufficient number of what the Affordable Care Act terms as full-time employees. And that... Uh, characterization of who's a full-time employee is a brand new definition under the Affordable Care Act and frankly it's a definition that most businesses hadn't been using before and that is essentially anyone who's working 30 or more hours per week. So uh, an employer that was covering full-time employees before the Affordable Care Act may have set the bar a lot higher because frankly that's where American business has generally set the bar much higher than 30 hours a week. And um, it might have been 35 hours a week or 32 hours a week or or even 37 and a half, 40 hours a week. And along comes the Affordable Care Act where part-timers still don't need to be covered, but that part-time definition creates a need for employers to set the bar at 29 hours a week. And that's just something that American business hadn't been doing. And so that's resulting in enormous costs for a lot of employers. And as we know, health care costs have been constantly increasing. The Affordable Care Act, um, notwithstanding the name Affordable Care Act, hasn't done much to alleviate those very, very high, that very, very high um, cost for businesses with respect to the coverage of their their employee base. So. What we do at Littler is we try to figure out ways in which employers can best confront this this big, big cost. And um, if employers don't want to pay the cost, they don't have to pay the cost of, of, of coverage. They, they can instead pay a penalty tax. Um, but, uh, but but that dredges up a whole set of other issues. So, um, you know, employers can sometimes be stuck between a rock and a hard place when it comes to health care right now.
2: Well, I'm curious. Uh, if you don't pay it, you pay a penalty of some dollars per, per employee. Right. But, but then you're essentially free, or aren't you?
0: Well, yeah, you're essentially free, but, you know, a lot of employers, before the advent of the Affordable Care Act, were covering the people who they wanted to cover, and oftentimes, you know, just as a strict business need, you must cover... You're executives and you've got to cover, your, you know, the, the people who are expecting health care as a matter of their employment uh, structure and, and, and what they consider to be a reasonable employment um, apparatus. And so you've got to cover certain people. And then there were always part-timers and other types of folks who you didn't have to cover. And, and so you could choose to cover the, the people you wanted to cover not cover the other folks and that would be okay. Now with the Affordable Care Act, suppose you're covering the same group of people. Next year, in 2016, if you're not covering 95% of your full-time employees, and, and that full-time bar, as I had mentioned, is, has dropped all the way down to 30 hours per week, then, then you get taxed $2,000 a head, multiplied by every full-time employee you have, irrespective of whether you're covering them. So, so you could be covering the same people you're covering traditionally and still get hit with this huge tax if you're not covering 95% of your full-timers. So that would just be an extra cost of $2,000 ahead. head, um, and um, that, that could really hurt. On the other hand, if you didn't want to cover anybody anymore, you could just say, okay, we're, we're done covering you. And, and we'll pay that $2,000 per head tax for each full-time employee. And, and you can e- exempt out, on, by the way, on that tax the first 30 employees. So if you have 100 employees, you could pay tax just on, on 70 of them, so that would be a tax of $140,000. Um, but then you've got all sorts of other issues. There are there, still people that expect coverage, and you're going to have to either give them an increased salary or something else. And um, it's 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 not always easy for, for employers to find out where that happy medium is, where they can uh, provide what their employees are expecting them to provide, what is as a good employer, they, they they want to provide. And and yet, um, you know, having the the cost structure in place that's not going to make their business a lot more difficult well, to, to uh, run.
2: Let me ask you. Uh, some uh, some employers are saying, uh, uh, "Look, uh, for our lower-level employees, if yes. they go on the exchanges, which was all that Brahu was about, they could actually uh, get insurance cheaper. Uh, so we're going to mm-hmm. give you a two thousand
0: mm-hmm. dollars." But employers have to be careful. And, and, you know, we're not advertising here, but, but we're telling employers to make sure that they have competent legal counsel before they engage in any type of um, move that is outside the ordinary here. The, the IRS came out with guidance this year, which basically said that if you reimburse people for coverage, even if it's partial reimbursement, um, you're, you're running a health plan, and the health plan most likely won't work under the ACA, and, and, and you're doing something illegal. You know, that's the long and the short of it. So so you really can't provide a system in which you say, okay, go out and get coverage, and we'll reimburse you to a certain extent. What you can do is, and this is a very slippery slope, but, 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 but you're allowed to provide stipends to everybody, irrespective of whether they have health coverage, irrespective of what they do with the money, you know, so, so sort of no strings attached you can give people money so that they can buy health coverage or do whatever else they want with it, and then you. But then, on top of that, if you're not providing coverage, you're going to have be hit with a two thousand dollar tax. Um, and, and because of the tax, by the way, Don, um, it's not uh, deductible. So it's it the cost that's actually higher than two thousand dollars, vis-a-vis what you'd be spending your money as a business on. For any other purpose, where, where you could take a deduction for for those costs, but but there are there are employers who are figuring out a way. We're helping employers um, work out a way in which they can minimize these costs through stipends and other types of vehicles, so that um, they they get to a reasonable place. But you do have to be careful that uh, you're not doing something that the government would consider to be an illegal reimbursement.
2: Mhm. Well, you know, see, I. Uh, I, I forget the exact figure, but I'm told for a family of four, uh, the cost to employers on average is about $13,000. Uh, and uh, being hit. Uh, Steve, you're breathing into the phone, and uh, it's coming across. Uh, I'm sorry, Don. No, I just uh You have so much to say. I want to make sure our listeners hear it. If they don't hear me, that's okay. They want, I, I want to make sure they hear you. Um, uh, if, if the average cost is $13,000 thereabouts, and uh, uh, it's expected that the employers are going to be, particularly smaller employees, are going to be hit with anywhere from 10 to 30% increases, um, it, it seems to me that this is kind of like a runaway trade that uh, uh, the small business owner is really uh, caught in the middle with very little uh, alternatives
0: that's right, it's the small business owner that has clearly been hit the most the big guys had always been providing health care, they're still providing health care and it may be that they need to provide health care to more people but their businesses aren't being radically affected by the by the Affordable Care Act We've done polling and we know that it's the small business owners that have the greatest amount of apprehension, and rightfully so, about these costs. So what can you do as a small business, I think, is where we're all getting to. And there are a number of strategies. Uh, You know, what we're seeing some small businesses doing is they're trying to figure out, okay, can we uh, operate? If we put more people on what the ACA considers to be a part-time schedule, can we operate with a lot of 29, 28, 25-hour-a-week people as opposed to full-timers so that we don't have to cover them? Uh, You have to be careful there as well. You know, when we talk about legal risks and issues, um, it's not easy to take full-timers take them out of their full-time positions, take them out of their benefit-eligible positions, and make them part-timers, sometimes that gives rise to a grounds for a lawsuit, uh, because you really can't change someone's business position or, or um, what they're doing uh, on their day-to-day job just for the sake of saving money on benefits. So you have to be careful there. But you certainly can hire part-timers, you can hire people or have people who are working for you who are not your employees, independent contractors, people from staffing agencies, things of, you know, th- th- things like that are strategies that employers are also employing and um, sometimes those strategies will work nicely but, you know, at other times, there are increased costs to, say, having people from a staffing agency and, 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 frankly, you probably want those people covered by the staffing agency with insurance, and, and and that can be an increased cost as well. So um, there's not a lot of silver bullets here, but uh, for every business the situation is slightly different, the landscape is slightly different, and, um, and, and it's possible to sometimes figure out a way to get to a place where the Affordable Care Act has the, the least negative impact.
2: Mm. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with this uh, attempt by the Labor Department to say that if you're a franchisee, you're part of a big, uh, uh, a bigger group and you're no longer an individual small business? How do you think that's going to play out? <laughs>
0: it's it's going to make uh, everything we, we get at franchises a little more expensive probably, Don, and it's unfortunate. Um, franchisees generally are not part of. Uh, you know, oftentimes franchisees are small businesses, and <laughs> they they never consider themselves, in any sense of the word, uh, part of the operation that that is necessarily on on their door. But um, the uh, under the Affordable Care Act, uh, there there could be all sorts of. You know, the the government thinks that everybody's looking to get away with something, and is creating sort of the, the rules of the game as they go along. And that could be very, very harmful to businesses that uh, are, are legitimately small businesses. And, and, and the reason this is important, and we haven't touched on this, is if you're a business of under 50 employees, 50 full-time employees, uh, really, you don't have to comply with the employer mandate. So that's what this is all about. This year, you can be under 100. Next year, it's under 50. But essentially, if you're under those thresholds, you don't have to cover people. So what the government is saying is, well, you know, we're, we're going to f- figure out ways in which to aggregate groups together so that they can't get out from under the employer mandate, even if they legitimately should be out from the employer mandate.
2: Hmm. I, well, you know, the... Government wants what you have, Uh, and uh, to to wrap up, what are two or three things, and also I want the the audience to know how they can reach you, what are the two or three things that uh, a small business should make sure that they are doing in in this uh, uh, era of the ACA? Great question, Don. There, there are ways
0: to count hours for certain types of employees that every small business should be aware of. There's something called a measurement period and a stability period. So part-timers, people who might be variable-hour employees where they're not working um, a, a steady 30-hour week, you might not have to include those folks in your health care calculation. You might not have to provide them with health care. But, but you probably have to count their hours. So if you've got folks working for you seasonally, or if, if they're working a, you know, a, a, not a fixed schedule of 30 hours a week, but their hours fluctuate, or if they're, um, you know, other, otherwise part-timers, and even some temporary positions, depending on how long that position is, uh, is, is going to last for you, if you've got those folks, you should be speaking to someone to help you structure your ACA compliance. In any event, you should probably be counting all the hours of your employees. You should also be considering some workforce restructuring initiatives whereby you think about how you're going to maximize the use of part-timers and minimize the use of full-time employees. You might also think about having non-employees and other folks on your payroll um, but, it's, but it's a very slippery slope there because the government can reclassify people, so you really should also be speaking to somebody expert about how to best do these workforce restructurings. And, you know, and, and really, that's, that's the way we see it. The, the other thing you can do is really shop hard for, for health care insurance and, um, and, and, and try to drive your very best deal. You might want multiple plans because um, you have to be offering affordable coverage to everybody, and that might mean that, that, that you're going to have one plan for lower paid folks that works under the ACA but won't work for everybody, so you might have to have more than one plan. That's something most businesses haven't done before. And it's those types of initiatives that I think will, you know, um, make unfortunately make business a lot more complicated, make hiring employees a lot more complicated, but may allow folks to, you know, um, navigate around the ACA. And then the last thing is, as you had mentioned, you might consider just paying the penalty and sending people to the exchanges and and, and let them get tax subsidies. If their incomes are are, are low enough to get tax subsidies, it could be a win-win for everybody if you're paying $2,000 and letting them go and get any coverage from the exchange. But as I had mentioned, you've got to figure out some way to cover those folks who are absolutely going to demand coverage as, as, a, as a prerequisite for them working for you. So it's a lot of complexity but, um, but there it is.
2: Well, uh, let me ask you one more quick question. In your experience, uh, have you noticed that uh, the younger generation, do they uh, in the past, they didn't really care about health care insurance? Uh, are you still seeing that dynamic where the younger people, don't really view that as important uh, in in their job selection. As, as you know, it's old... interesting. It,
0: it, it's a good question. Younger people generally feel invincible when it comes to to health. Um, something that seems to uh, dissipate pretty quickly as, as as folks get older. But um, but I think that as a as a perk of their jobs, at a certain level, people are still expecting health insurance. Um, one of the good things about the Affordable Care Act is young folks can stand their parents' plans until they're 26. But, but once they're 26, they're, they're going to need something else. And I think that young people who have, um, at, at a certain level in the workplace, are going to be expecting health care insurance just as part and parcel of their jobs, even though they, they don't necessarily feel that they're going to use it.
2: And people want to reach you? How can they do it?
0: Well, there's, there's two ways. Um, my email address is sfriedman at littler, that's S-F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, at littler, L-I-T-T-L-E-R.com, or I can be called uh, at uh, in New York, 212-583-2687.
2: Uh, well, Steve, always a pleasure having You have to come back again later on in the I've- year. To talk about more about this.
0: Happy to do it Don, thank you very much.
2: Uh, Have a good day and a a great summer. Thank you too. I I went to the Fancy Food Show uh, recently and ran into an extraordinary woman, Janet Sawyer, who who joins us. She brings an international flavor to this. Janet, welcome to the program.
3: Hi, good morning Don.
2: Good morning to you. Uh, Janet, we always ask our guests first to say a little bit about their personal background before we do anything else. So tell us a little bit about yourself.
3: Oh, well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to say something about myself. Um, I'm here in New York uh, from uh, Devon in England, where I um, am the director of my own company called Little Pod. And Little Pod is a... Small Janet, company.
2: Janet, speak closer to the to your phone.
3: Can you hear me now, John?
2: Oh, uh, speak a little bit closer because you're a little faint.
3: Okay, can you hear me now?
2: Uh, hear me better, now? yes, yes. Go ahead. Can you hear
3: me now? Yes, yes. yes. Excellent. Uh, good morning, John. I'm Janet Sawyer. I'm the managing director of a company called Little Pod, uh, which is based in East Devon, in England. Uh, down in the West Country, Uh, I have two hats on. I am the director of Little Pod, which I started five years ago, with um, ten young graduate interns, and it's been very successful. Uh, I'm also the director of uh, the Farringdon Society of Arts, which is a not-for-profit community arts group that I started ten years ago in our little village of 300 people. Um, I'm here in in New York because I was invited to come along um, by by David Porritt of Chelsea Market Market Basket, who had taken my product and my book. The book was launched in October last year. Um, And Ryan and Peter Small, my publishers, have an office here in New York, so I came to meet up with them. I I had a lovely day last Sunday doing a book signing at Chelsea Market Basket. But with my other hat on, the arts and culture hat on, I also had a lovely day um, attending the first international summit of the Culinary and Cultural Arts Alliance in, um, the, of the East End in uh, Long Island with my friend Yvonne Leibline and um, the lovely George Hirsch, your culinary chef, your celebrity chef here, um, whose idea it is to have this wonderful um, culinary and cultural art society. Um, and I was um, attending to give my experience and to be part of that joyful beginning.
2: Well, um, uh, I've, I've seen a copy of your book, uh, and it's a, a beautiful book. But, Thank you. Uh, but this is a program about small business. And from your um, perspective, what are the differences between uh, having a relatively small business in England and what you've seen here in the United States?
3: Well, I was quite interested in listening to your previous speaker about the idea of franchises becoming not being thought of as small businesses, um, because in in a way they are small businesses, but I understand through taxes and all sorts of things that they have to be, um, thought of as a larger uh, conglomeration, but a small business in England, um, I, I'm not sure what kind of support you get here in the United States, but I'm over here on this, um, there is a trade mission from UKTI, United Kingdom Trade and Industry Association, which I could have joined. However, I did get support from UKTI on what's called an EMRS scheme, which is a research a research uh, scheme. Um, and I met up with um, our UKTI officer over here, um, and Neil Gordon. And they give quite a lot of support to coming over and, and being part of um, an international team. Um, so I'm not quite sure how well uh, supported the very small, tiny startup businesses are over here. Um, in the UK, we, we, they are very keen on supporting small startups, especially now after the recession, with a million young graduates unemployed and encouraging people to start their own businesses and encouraging young people to become apprentices. Um, I, uh, George, our apprentice, has just been um, 18 months with me as my apprentice, and mm. he's just been made Apprentice of the Year by the local Dutch college. And uh, he's going off now to do a BSc in food manufacturing and business studies so they the government see the small businesses now as a way of levering the um, uh, the young people into jobs not just any job but jobs that offer some career development you went
2: to, you went to the fancy food show uh, which is uh, people may not be aware is one of the uh, premier trade shows uh, in the United States. Um, now, you met a lot of people there. How do you follow up, and what do you do to follow up uh, with the people you meet there?
3: Well, it was, it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, the people, I was, I'm very, um, uh, obviously, I owe a lot to David Torrick from Chelsea Market Basket, who, who has taken on my product anyway and loves the book. And I actually found that a lot of people love the book. And a book is a very good way of introducing your company, I can see that now, and um, they can, and it helps them to understand who you are and what you're about. Um, and all the people who came, um, I've had people from stores around, uh, around um, New York, and they wanted to know about the product, and they will follow up via David, um, because obviously it's you need to have um, not an agency as as such, but a a distributor to take you on. Um, You may also need an agency to do the labeling and that sort of thing because labeling requirements are going to be different over here. But I also met up with um, people from Canada, distributors from Canada, who then took an interest in my company and the product, and I will be following up with them um, we follow up with contracts and, and uh, various obligations
2: afterwards. You, you went to the show, you, you met people. How did you find yeah. uh, the, the, the other um, booth people? Uh, you're a very gregarious person. Um, uh, I always enjoy uh, meeting you because you're always so fascinating. Uh, but what did you find? What did you find uh, uh, interesting about your the people around you uh, at the show, and the, and the people at the show, from, uh, from you being from another country and, and coming here? What did you find interesting about the, the show and the people? Well,
3: that's very interesting if you should say that because you, because. Um, yes, I, I am a gregarious person and I am quite direct, which in England is quite unusual. I mean, people um, very often want to go through a process first before they get to actually talking about the, um, the, the reason you're there. Uh, whereas here in New York, I find myself a little bit more at home because I, I notice that the people are very direct and they want to get to the number, the of uh, the conversation very quickly. So they are very, very good at assessing a um, situation and understanding uh, what the needs are. And they're very good at saying no as well. They're very good at not wasting your time or taking any time of it. No, nope, that's not going to suit us, thank you very much. And it's very refreshing, actually. I found that really refreshing. I felt oh, this is so nice to be with all these people who are just... They're going to say yes. They're going to say no. They're going to say, "Well, we can't do that. You can't do it this way." And also, they like to do a deal, so they like a bit of negotiation as well, which I find fun.
2: Okay, let's turn to your book. Tell us about yes. your book, which I I, I love.
3: Oh, thank you, Don. That's very kind of you. Um, the book was that um, came about. Uh, two years ago, in October uh, 2013, when Nathan Joyce, who's the commissioning editor in England for um, Ryland Peters Small, uh, came to see me at a cake and bake show. And he started talking to me, and I was telling him the story of vanilla. I was telling him the story of uh, Little Pod and how we started, how we began, and all the people who are our customers, etc. And he just said to me there and then, will you write a book? So I said <laughs> Well, yeah, it's okay, so will you meet me in Oxford? So I met him in Oxford, and uh, he he said to me, I would like this book ready for January, I mean, which is, you know, no time at all. And so um, I got together all my customers and asked them if they would uh, join with me in submitting a recipe, and then I wrote little stories about why I chose each of the recipes. Some of the recipes are mine, but some of them, a lot of them are my customers who use the product, and... Some of them are very interesting people, so I was thrilled that they were prepared to um, contribute. And then there's 10,000 words about vanilla, and not just about the story of vanilla, but about the crisis in, 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 on the ecosystem of, uh, of the equatorial belt. And I was thrilled that I'm here, it's so um, uh, fortuitous that I'm here this week because uh, you're uh, President Barack Obama was interviewing David Attenborough on the television um, about the lemurs in Madagascar, and David Attenborough, whom I quote in the book, is the foremost um, English person who has been trying to um, reach out to people for generations and still does um, to tell them about the importance of um, preserving the ecosystem on the well, on the planet. But but definitely in the equatorial region. And even Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF, at her speech in the Guildhall uh, last year, she surprised all the economists when she said, we must all now um, think about the equatorial belt, and it's very important.
2: Well, it's fascinating. But now, uh, in America, uh, in order to really generate sales of, of a book, you have to do a lot of your own uh marketing, uh, as the author. What are you doing to, uh, fr- from England to market your book here in the United States?
3: Well, I was very to find it. I, had, I had a meeting with um, uh, Diana and Christina at Ryan and Peter Small in New York office, and they told me that um, I've sold 800 copies of this book um, since uh, it was launched at the end of October. In fact, Country Life magazine, I, think, I believe it's sold over here in, in the United States, um, um, last year, they um, selected it as one of the best cookery books of the year. So that was a very good um, aid to me selling the book. But they were, you know, it was really surprising because they said that's about 100 books a month, which for um, a starter, you know, somebody like me, a complete unknown with her first book, they said was an amazing achievement. And I, uh, when I was um, at this international summit, the first international summit of the Culinary and Cultural Art Society in, in, uh, there in Northport. Um, George Hirsch said that that, he's written many books, of course, and he said that is a great achievement for a first book. So I'm now here, and now that I'm here, and I did the book signing at Chelsea Market Basket, um, lots of people, and I was interested because there's a lot of international people there, and every single one of them was interested and, and um, in, the, in the story and the book. So I began to feel heartened that so I've got here. here and hearteners of, um, of the vanilla story and the Little Pod story already out here. In fact, on the plane coming over, I met a chap called Don, would you believe? I met a chap called Don, and he, we shared an armrest together on the plane, and I was telling him about Little Pod and the Book, And he ordered a book from Chelsea Market, and he said, I'm going to tell people of Atlanta about you. So
2: it is, it's word of mouth, really. Uh, yes? Well, no, no. Uh, I'm always fascinated. Uh, if you, from, from your perspective as, as, uh, um, uh, from England, what are the three things you would tell a small business owner, whether in England or here, they should do uh, to uh, uh, increase the sales of their product or service?
3: what they should do. Well, I think um, in, Eng- in England, um, I think, ma- well, marketing is so important, but I think the first thing you should do, I think what Little Pod has done successfully is when I started the business, there were two things that I did. The first one was to invest in branding and design. Because the importance, I know it's expensive to for a startup to get doing, um, but um, if you invest in branding and design, you know who you are, and you know what your story is, and you know what you're about. And you could, from then on, you never lose, uh, lose touch with the um, genesis of why you're there. And, and I think that's the first important thing to do. Even if, you're, even if it's on a shooting, you should still somehow or another get together and go through that process. It's a very creative and, and dynamic process to go through, but it is definitely worthwhile. That's the first thing. Um, and then the second thing I think that's really, really important is to put in systems and processes in your company from the beginning. Um, if, you make, if you start everything off, so I don't know if you're manufacturing or producing something, then you need to have accreditation. With uh, small business in England, we have something called SAFSA, Small and Local Suppliers Approval. And I wanted SAFSA from the very beginning. So from the very beginning, I wanted to put systems and processes in place so that we had all the checks and balances so that we could get SELTA as quickly as possible. And we've had SELTA now for two years, which is a big achievement, and we have a five-hour audit every year of the whole company. And I think that's very important because by the time you're five years old, 97% of companies fail by by the fifth year. So by the time you're five years old, which we are now, and we launched a new vanilla shortbread to mark that occasion, uh, which we're working with, with Reed, the Chase Nest, one of the best shortbread makers in, in, in the UK. Um, and we, so to keep launching another, you know, another vacuum is a good thing um, to refresh your brand. Um, so uh, it's really important to put systems and processes in place. If you don't, you'll find yourself 10 years down the line. And um, without those systems and processes, you have all these orders, everything. And then you will have been stuck because you'll have to um, pay a lot of money to get somebody in to come and put those systems and processes in place. And, and that's uh, an interesting thing. So I, I really would recommend people do that. Thirdly, um, if you go onto HSBC website, I know HSBC have had a knocking recently about Christmas and things, but my local HSBC in, in the UK have been fantastic. And um, if you go onto their website, you'll see me on their website with a quote saying, when you start a business, don't do it alone. If you're older, um, if, you, if, if you're young, get yourself a mentor. If you're older, get yourself a graduate intern. And I've had 10 graduate interns through my company, and they've all launched themselves into their own careers. And it, you get a huge amount of satisfaction from seeing those young people. Uh, gain their diplomas and go on to bigger companies. I mean, One, one of my uh, previous, uh, we've now an alumni, a Little Pod alumni, who from UCLP we call it, University College Little Pod, and she's now working for Unilever on their sustainability project.
2: Well that's a perfect segue. What is your website for your business and what's the website for your book?
3: Um, the website for the book and the business is the same. So it's www.littlepod, that's little, P-O-D, littlepod, all one word, .co.uk. And,
2: and your book?
3: And that's the same website for the book, although you can also get, you can go to Violent Peter Small, R-P-S. I'm afraid I don't know, it's www.rps, Violent Peter Small.
2: Okay. Uh, uh, Janet, I hope uh, to see you again next year at the Fancy Food Show, and if you come back to the States, please give us a call, and we'll have you back on.
3: Thank you so much, John. It's been an absolute delight to meet you.
2: Have a really good day and a safe trip back to England. Have an absolutely great trip, and uh, we'll hopefully see you again next year.
3: I would love to. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Our next guest who's been waiting patiently along, welcome to the show. Hi. How are you?
1: Fantastic,
2: and how are you? Good. First, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself, personally, before we get into anything else.
1: Uh, Terry Barber, and I am America's Chief Inspiration and Engagement Officer. So I've got a great job and a full-time staff that does nothing to make sure that American business stays on top of all things that are inspiring in their culture.
2: I I love the title, but you're also CEO of the company, but it's interesting that you uh, introduce yourself that way, Uh, the company is performance uh, inspired, but uh, Terry, Tell us what you what your company does, and then we'll go on from there.
1: Primarily, we are all about helping companies raise what we would refer to as that inspiration level from within. We have great metrics, a real science around that, and what we know is that the higher the level of inspiration is within an organization's culture, the more profitable, the more engaged, and absolutely, uh, the more predictable their sales become. So we are all about helping organizations both assess and then we drive training and learning processes and content into the organization to help them move the needle to that end.
2: So if, uh, if I could understand you uh, correctly, you're essentially saying, if you can get uh, inspire your employees They will, in turn, inspire your sales and profits.
1: That's it. Pretty simple formula. So starting with your employees and create these inspirational transactions between their leaders and themselves and ultimately create an environment or culture that they thrive in and your customers are happy and your profits absolutely soar.
2: Well, how do you do it?
1: Well, you know, it sounds like it's ominous, but the truth is it happens in most, of, most of the time from one relationship to the other. So we work with leaders and those who are, would even be recognized as emerging leaders and help them understand there's so much more to being a leader than just managing processes or managing time or managing things and you absolutely look into the lives of the individuals that you work with who are your subordinates, and you recognize the fact that this is an opportunity to actually pull something out of them as an employee that maybe they don't even see in themselves. So it's bringing about their potential and tapping into their aspirations. And when that happens, you actually are getting right at the heart of what drives discretionary effort.
2: So you're trying to to get people to do more than just the job, be more than just a drone, but rather an innovative individual within the organization.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Enough of the drone stuff. Enough of the dull, dudrum kind of, laxadaisical non-productive uh, kind of thing that goes on. We, we should be alive with purpose and meaning and if we can't find that in the, in the life and the work that we presently have, we need to make a change either for ourselves or to ourselves or to the environment that we work in.
2: Well there's some uh, in my work experience there's some people that no matter what you do, will always be a negative force. How do you deal with someone like that? Yeah, well, I mean, let's be
1: really clear because the fact is we all have people within our organization and and get even more personal, maybe even within our families, who have a propensity to see the hole in the donut versus the donut. They (laughs) really don't like to see the opportunity. Everything is naysaying to them, but you know, you can tolerate that, um, providing that there is some check and balances. That is, we're, we don't mind that you're being critical as long as you're being critical with an intent to teach and a purpose uh, to, to drive excellence. So just being dissatisfied is not necessarily a bad thing. It could be that I'm being dissatisfied because I see that there's a better way of doing things, and I'm, and I'm committed and passionate about driving to that extent. However, when it comes to a place where you are both unproductive and negative, that's really where you look at the individual, and and that's an easy decision. It's like, well, we're going to ultimately, we've got to deal with this, and whether it's termination or moving them to a place where they're isolated uh, so they just don't create harm. But I think the ones, the group, the segment that is most challenging to deal with, quite frankly, are those who have bad behavior or bad attitude, but they're great performers. That's the real challenge, and that's an awful lot about where we spend our time in terms of correction and coaching.
2: Well, you know, uh, in my experience, uh, I, I've run into individuals which are exactly like they pre- perform well, and, and they generate sales, and they generate uh, good, positive feedback, but uh, Boy, you would hate to invite them home for dinner. Uh, I'm, I'm just, one, uh, just just wondering, but let me go on to a, a, a different question. You, you. In in this world today, we seem to be dealing with uh, a lot of negative negativism. People, whenever I someone does something good for me, I say thank you or I compliment them. And it's almost as if they're uh, shocked to hear that. Uh, Do you see that? And how can you turn that into a positive? Well,
1: I think you're absolutely right that people are overwhelmed when they begin to see somebody who's actually taking time enough to be kind and considerate. It's very counterintuitive in the culture that we live in. However, I do believe that there is an emerging group of people to our country, in particular, who have decided they're going to start paying it forward. I'm a part of an organization here based in Atlanta called CEO Netweavers, and it's all these CEOs who are high power, very influential in their field, but who have committed their life to paying it forward, so they are constantly involved in being able to mentor and to try to do anything in the, in the behalf of somebody else without necessarily having anything in mind for something that is owed back to them. So I see that happening, and and the more that we can shine the light on those kind of stories and really show that there are champions who are doing that, and they are people who are not necessarily just nice people, but these are highly productive, very successful executive types who can live that kind of life with that attitude, and the more that we can show those kind of stories and demonstrate that the nice guy is not the one necessarily just coming in last, then we have a better chance of being able to rally the rest of the troops around the fact maybe there's something to this thing about being positive and being a servant leader and kind and gracious.
2: Well, you know, uh, President Obama was elected on the basis of bringing us together and uh, uh, offering a vision, a greater vision. How, how can we, as business people, uh, emulate that uh, uh, in our everyday lives? Well, it, part of it
1: really is about being purpose-driven, don't you think? When we, as an individual can start the day with a sense of understanding that it's not about just making money. Do I want to make money? Yeah, is it important to be profitable? Yes, absolutely. But ultimately, it's really about something that's bigger. Maybe it's a service that you're trying to provide that you know is true enhancement for somebody else's life. It's not just a widget. And so if we can become more purpose-driven and when we meet people, I mean, think about this, we typically introduce ourselves and have an identity that's really wrapped up in our role or who, what we do at work, but what if our identity really started being around a deeper purpose, the true why of what we do and why we live our lives? And I think that becomes in itself a beacon and, and, and a way of being able to be an extremely loud voice, turn the volume up, if you will on that which is hopeful, and positive, and visionary.
2: Uh, I, I totally agree with you. I, I just uh, feel uh, the internet, in a way, has kind of uh, driven us away from the personal interaction. We do a majority of our interactions today on the internet. Uh, getting someone on the phone today is almost impossible. How? Do you have any ideas on that and how we can kind of break through the... uh, People think of the Internet as as an avenue for communication, but I sometimes think it's an avenue. uh, It blocks us from really having interactions together.
1: Well, I think this is especially true in organizational health. I mean, it's one thing to um, be able to scale communication with customers at, at mass levels, uh, Amazon is a great example, even though you never talk to a human being there, there is some sense of authentic transaction that takes place, there's quickness in response, but you, you know, you kind of, you don't expect a, a human relationship there, so it's a brand connection, but within an organization, I guarantee you that the you know, the the 20,000 plus employees within Amazon, if they are not connected to one another somehow or another, you would not see that kind of delivery take place. And when we are totally dependent upon using email as our sole source of communication with one another, we will compromise our relationship with one another. I've seen this happen when even in the classic example, there's an individual sitting in a spot right across the aisle from you, and rather than that individual speaking to you, they'll send you an email, and if they're chapped about something, it's going to be big, bold, with lots of exclamation points. And this is how we've become a conduits of our emotions now, rather than being smart, articulate, and uh, individuals who have the capacity to talk about things face-to-face.
2: I couldn't agree with you more. I was shocked the other day when I saw three young people sitting next to each other texting each other. I was just, I was absolutely shocked, uh, and I just uh, they, they were they were literally three people sitting together texting to each other, and I, I found that just mind mind boggling. But but this is your your time. Uh, I want to just throw it open and say. Uh, tell us what you'd like to, uh, our, our audience to hear on this subject.
1: Well, I, I mean, I think what I'd love to be able to pass on to anyone who has an open ear and who has a desire to see their influence expanded from where it sits right now, be it their personal influence or their brand influence, is begin with a sense of understanding that it starts with relationships. So identifying those key relationships in your life, whether it's it's family and or business, that you're going to absolutely pour yourself into to make sure that their lives are better because of you having been a part of their life. And in so doing, you're looking to make their dreams come true. And I I will always remember uh, my friend Zig Ziglar years ago who, who said, help enough people get what they want and you will ultimately get what you want and I'd love to see that be a triumphant and championship kind of message that leaders would walk around with today
2: from your lips to God's ears what a wonderful statement please continue you you're inspiring me
1: (laughs) well you know, the other thing that, that we teach within our workshops, um, we've got a, an entire training session that we call Lead to Inspire, and we find that one of the key elements that drives and changes behavior is our ability as leaders to be able to look at times in our life when we have not always made the right decision, we don't hide from it, we don't shame ourselves because of it, but we learn from it and we teach from it. And we're different because of it. In other words, those very things that others may perceive as shortcomings and failures, we look as a way of falling forward, as a chance to teach others out of our own mistakes. And in so doing, people are inspired by that. So when we hear an individual, um, Howard Schultz is a great example. You know, in in 2008 in in New Orleans in, in the Superdome, He's got 10,000 of his employees that he's flown in from all over the country there for a big event as a time to reimagine where Starbucks could go, because it hit a really low place in performance. And his opening statement was, I need to ask you to forgive me, because I let go of the hem of that vision. I was responsible for where we are. Things are different now. And you would think, okay, intuitively you say, well, why wouldn't they all just get up and walk out? The man just totally admitted that he blew it. But instead, they were galvanized by his speech and really rallied around him in this passionate desire to continue to press forward a culture that would be transformational for America and around the world. So they've created a community now all based on these values of all things that are inspiring. So what a, what a huge difference that something even as simple as owning up to a mistake and being able to teach from your ways so that somebody else is better off for it. That's powerful.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. In the companies you've dealt with, What are two or three companies that you feel do this in a way that you would recommend others to do it?
1: Well, you know, one of the companies that we work with is the Cancer Treatment Centers of America. I love these people. They are so committed to all those things that that we're talking about. Being purpose-driven, absolutely looking at themselves as leaders to be able to understand that we are vulnerable and therefore we must be accountable and therefore we must be transparent with one another and when you see and you walk, you touch, you feel not just the outcome of their work which is powerful but just the nature of their conversations with one another the kindness that they express toward each other the way that leaders serve the subordinates within the organization It is a classic picture of a servant-leadership-oriented kind of culture.
2: Terry, if people want to reach you or your company, how do they do it? The
1: easiest way, go to Google and type in
2: Terry Barber
1: Inspires, and there will be a host of ways to be able to find me. Will
2: you spell it out for our audience?
1: Yeah, T-E-R-R-Y. Not an I. Barber, B-A-R-B-E-R, like haircut. Terry Barber inspires.
2: Well, Terry, uh, you you've inspired me today. Uh, I'm I'm glad to hear. You know, I'm of the generation where we were taught uh, this generation helps the next generation, and uh, you seem to be uh, uh, almost the. Creating, recreating that way and I'm really happy that you came on the program
1: well great well thank you so much for having me and look forward to next time and in the meantime hope you make it a great and a wonderful day
2: you too have a nice right. day thanks thank you for listening tonight all of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience they do not pay to join us but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you'd like to be a guest or suggest topics, For future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.
1: It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?